0: Good morning, if you would, grab a Bible, let's turn to Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 1, it is good to see you this morning, this is our third Sunday, normally second Sunday is when we do our Q&A morning, Uh, but I got bumped last week. And uh, So we're here on the third Sunday to do Q&A. This is our Q&A session. Uh, For those who are unfamiliar with what we do, uh, just a brief overview. I like to give this just mainly to cut down on people raising their hands and asking more questions and and us not being able to finish what I already have prepared. Uh, These are questions that people have submitted to me. Uh, either in writing or in text message in some way and uh, these are the answers that I have prepared to their questions so we're not really doing the rapid fire back and forth kind of thing uh, mainly because we only have a certain number of minutes here and uh, we have a lot to cover I told you last month uh, that in anticipation of leaving in a couple of months here I started looking at my list of Q&A questions and realizing it was way, way too long and uh, I wanted to address as many as I could and uh, so... In keeping with that, I, I told you last month I was going to be moving a little faster than normal through the Q&A answers. If you have some questions about my answers, we can continue to discuss that. But I've, I've tried to streamline a little bit, so we'll be moving a little faster than normal, so my apologies for that. Uh, these questions uh, I have grouped together, and you will see, maybe when you get to the end of the lesson this morning, you'll see how all these things kind of work along the same lines. Uh, that they, they are questions that are more to do with the nature of God and the nature of Jesus than most of the things we normally talk about. Usually, those are kind of odd questions. Uh, that they're not really the part of what we're talking about at the moment. But I've gathered all those together from all that you have asked me over the, the last couple of years, and uh, we're going to go through them one by one this morning. So the first question is, is God a class of beings? So the question is, uh, what we make of the idea of God and gods and the use of the terms that uh, speak about God Part of the question is about whether there are other gods besides Jehovah God, and part of it is about what type of being he is. So look in Genesis 1-1 with me. Genesis 1-1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God, the Hebrew word here is Elohim. You guys know I don't like to get into original languages much. For one, I don't know much about them, uh, and I usually just sound like I don't know much about them. Uh, but, But in this case, I believe it's relevant and important. Uh, This is not the word for Jehovah or Yahweh, the name of God. That's often translated in all caps, Lord. This is the word for the sort of generic word for God, Elohim. It is plural, but that seems to be sort of like a royal we type plural where, you know, it's not saying that there's multiple gods here created the heavens and the earth, but it is instead a way of referring to God. Uh, But then you turn the page to Genesis 2, and Genesis 2 and verse 4 It says, these are the generations of the heavens and earth when they were created, Genesis 2-4, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. So here that word Elohim is combined with the personal name of God. If you're reading a version that has it this way, it'll be in all caps, L-O-R-D, Lord. And when you see that, that's the word, the specific name for God, Yahweh or Jehovah. So this word, though, for God is interesting it has a number of uses that are not specific to applying to Jehovah God. It talks about, it's used to talk about other beings. So I, I've given a few of these, and I'll show them to you on the board. This is Psalm 82, 1, which is a fascinating study in its own right, Psalm 82. Uh, but it says, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. So this is the word Elohim, God, and then the midst of the gods is also the word Elohim. So... God in the midst of gods. So it would certainly seem to imply that there are other beings that are in this class of Elohim besides just God. And that God is is exercising judgment over them. And in Psalm 82, there are certain realms that God seems to have divided among others. And now he is calling them to account about how they have behaved in their possession of those realms. And uh, that's its own study. We really, really don't have time for Psalm 82 this morning. But it is another use of this term. Sometimes when you talk about certain nations, each nation in the ancient world had its own god or goddess, and uh, so that word that is used to describe them is often the word Elohim. This is 1 Kings 11, because they have forsaken me, you can hear God is speaking here, and worshiped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of Moab, and Milcom, the god of the Ammonites. And so each time you see the word god or goddess here, it's the word Elohim. So, that's certainly another use. Now, I'm really not ready to talk too much about this passage. Uh, This is 1 Samuel 28, 13. This is when Saul goes to the medium, and uh, the medium calls up Samuel from the dead. And it says, the king said to her, do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. And that word God is Elohim. It's that same word as in Genesis 1, 1. Uh, Elohim. Now, let me say this. It's a little sketchy to define our theology by what a scared medium says. Okay, that's a weird place to go to prove anything about anything. But my point is, the reason I bring all these up, that word that is sometimes just translated God is very versatile. And so it's used in different contexts. Sometimes it's used to talk about angels or the angel of God. And so it just has a lot of different uses. So what does that all mean? Let me be very clear. That does not mean that there are tons of God's and Jehovah is just one of many. It's not what it means. It does not mean that every being that is called Elohim has the same attributes. You can see the differences there, right? It's one thing to say there's Jehovah God. It's another thing to say there's an angel. Or it's another thing to say that there are gods and goddesses of the nations. Those are different ideas. There, there is something I found. One scholar said, and I thought this was helpful. He said Elohim is a place of residence term. It's about where these beings live So everything that inhabits the spiritual realm is Elohim. So God is a spirit being, but not all spirit beings are God. Spirit beings have many different uh, divisions and hierarchies. It also does not mean, when we talk about gods this way, it does not mean that idols are real beings or that the false gods that other nations serve are real beings. Although there is some indication that Paul equates them with demons in 1 Corinthians 10. And so there's something to be said about that. But I don't think that this has anything to do with their reality. Just that if you were to talk about those gods, they are spirit beings. They are considered to be spirit beings. And so maybe they're just purported to exist. Maybe they really exist. I don't think they really exist. But the people who believed in them certainly thought they did. And they would call them Elohim or spirit beings. So in answer to the question, is God a class of beings? In one sense, yes, there are lots of Elohim. In another sense, no, there is only one true God. There is only one Jehovah God, and he is God above all. And so I think we just need to be able to say, okay, this word is a little more versatile than what we would normally think, uh, but upon further inspection, it doesn't really rock our theology any, just to say that there are a number of spiritual beings. And so God... God, in the sense that that word is used, is a class of beings. But God, in the sense of Jehovah as the true God, is not a class. He's a class by himself. All right, second question. Why is God known by so many names? You see we're kind of on the same track here. Uh, Let's go over to Ephesians. Don't go to Ephesians. Go to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus 3. This is the scene where uh, God appears to Moses in the bush... And it is obvious here that the use of God's name that he reveals is significant. You can see that from the way it is worded. Exodus 3 and verse 13. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So you see, the revelation of God's name is really important. He is called I am. He says I am who I am or that I am, and he says you need to tell them I am has sent me to you. So What's important about I am is that it communicates the eternal nature of God. God always is. He is eternal. He is the one who just exists. He always is. And so it is likely that the word Yahweh or Jehovah is related etymologically to the word for to be, I am that that word becomes the name of God. In fact, if you're reading ESV, there's a little footnote here about that, that it seems like Yahweh, that name for God in Hebrew, is actually a reference back to God being. So I am is then the part of God's name from then on. When they talk about God, they call him I am. But that's far from the only name that is used in scripture to describe God. Uh, God has a number of names. So I, I made a little list here. Uh, one of them is El Shaddai, which is the word for God, and then the word for Almighty. Uh, this is when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. So there is a distinction made here. He is not known as Jehovah God in the same way, but known by another name that communicates something else about him. Almighty means Almighty, he is able to do whatever. Turn the page over to Exodus 6. God actually says something about this to Moses. Exodus 6 and verse 2. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. That's El Shaddai. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. That's significant, right? He says, they knew me as this. They knew me as God Almighty Almighty. But by my name, Jehovah or Yahweh, they didn't know me. It seems as though the Yahweh, Jehovah idea communicates more about who God really is than just the term God Almighty or El Shaddai. So there's something there about God coming in closer for a more intimate relationship with his people that's communicated by the name Yahweh or Jehovah. So El Shaddai is another name God uses. Yahweh of hosts is a very, very common name. Uh, Lord of hosts. Uh, This is um, when David attacks Goliath. David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. That's Yahweh of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. So Yahweh of hosts speaks of God at the forefront of a great army of some sort. And the, the sort is different. You can see here, it's the armies of Israel. Uh, sometimes it seems to be the armies of heaven. Sometimes it seems to be the host of heaven, which would be the stars. Okay, but one way or another, it is God in charge, God in authority. Uh, so a few others, I'm just going to put these up here, and you can look at these references later if you'd like. Uh, Yahweh Nisi, which means the Lord is my banner. Uh, during the war with the Amalekites, uh, Yahweh Rophe, the Lord who heals. Exodus 15, 26, where God promises, I won't let any of the diseases come on you because I'm I'm Jehovah the healer. Uh, Yahweh Shalom, the Lord is peace. Judges 6, 24, that's what uh, Gideon names his altar. And then Yahweh Jireh, the Lord will provide, which is what um, Abraham names when uh, Jehovah provides uh, a ram for him to offer in place of his son Isaac. But... You see, these names, they're they're names of God, but they're names that have specific meanings in each case. Sometimes they're names that God adopts and says, this is how I want you to know me. And sometimes they're names that people give God to say, this is what God did for us. Uh, And there are others besides these that you'll find if you look through them. The question, though, is, why is God known by so many names? Names are ways we communicate something about ourselves. And I think we have lost this in modern Western culture. We don't usually name our children names that have significant meaning. Names that communicate something about who they are, the circumstances of their birth, something about their family, something about what God has done for us. But Jewish people definitely did. Most people in the ancient world did. They had, if I'm going to name something, that name is significant. Because it's not just a label. It is instead communicating something about character something about circumstances. And so you could just look through the naming process throughout the Bible, and you'll find that sometimes you get people who name, especially by the time of Jesus, we're looking backward to find our names by connecting with other characters that we want our children to be like. And you actually, we do that today, don't we? We name our children. We don't name our children Jezebel. Is it because we're... we're Worried about that? No, it's just that uh, whatever happens, even if they're a great kid, I don't want them to be associated with that. We don't name our children Judas for the same reason. But when you look at the New Testament, uh, most of Jesus' disciples are named after heroes of the Maccabean period, like Simon, Simon Peter, like John. These different figures that everyone says, yes, or Judas even. These are famous Maccabean heroes. So what you get is names communicating something, but not always in our culture the way it did then, communicating something of character. But when God names himself something, he is trying to say, this is who I am, and this is how I want you to know me and think about me. It's significant to me that if you're going to call God the God who heals, it's going to tell you something about him. If you're going to call God God Almighty, God the ever being, then what you're saying is, I know who he is I know something about him. And when I'm in need or in some way uh, grasping for something, I know who to turn to. So the answer to my, my answer to the question, why is God known by so many names, is because God wants to show himself to us in a fuller way. He could just be God Almighty, but instead he also tells us he is the I am. He also tells us he's the God who heals. He also tells us all these things about his character. All right, third question. How is God holy in Leviticus 19.2? As you might imagine, we're going to turn over and read Leviticus 19.2. Leviticus 19.2 says, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father, and you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. All right, so... This is probably the catchword of all of Leviticus, is holiness, and we mirror God's holiness. We pattern our lives after the holiness of God. So all of the things that had to do with the worship had to do with holiness. All the things that had to do with the diet had to do with holiness. All the things that had to do with just everyday life, cleanness and uncleanness had to do with holiness. But the question is, what does it mean when he says, "Be holy for I am holy?" In what sense? Is God holy? And that is a challenging question to answer. Uh, One scholar says, holy here, I want you to listen to this because there are several ideas in one here. Holy means unique, pure, in the sense of having superior moral qualities. Or certain essential divine qualities in contrast to what is human. So one of the synonyms for holy is sacred. And so if we think of it that way, then God is saying, be sacred as I am sacred. When you read about what holiness entails in Leviticus, there is especially the idea of distinguishing. In Leviticus 11, where he talks about um, animals, what's to be eaten and what's not to be eaten, he talks about specifically, I want my people to learn to make a distinction between the clean and the unclean. Learning to see what's good and what's bad, what's clean and what's unclean, what's holy and common. So, everything that God instructs in Leviticus is intended to communicate that not everything is worthy of God. Not everything is pure in itself. That some things are clean and others are unclean. And it teaches his people to be aware of that spiritual dimension of everyday objects. Again, I think that's something we've lost in our culture and time. We don't think of things in the same way making a distinction between this thing is good and bad, pure and impure, clean or unclean. So when we talk about how is God holy, uh, my thoughts on that are that holiness is really hard to define as God's nature because God is other. And God has certain characteristics and purity and goodness and light that just comes out of him. It is who he is. And it's something that we see reflected on earth. In certain people, and certain objects, and certain attributes. But it's certainly not from the earth. And to be able to acknowledge the difference between what is sort of human, earthly, and what is divine and heavenly. We still have that battle. But when God says, I am holy, that's part of what he means. So, God's character requires us to make distinctions. Even now, as Christians between what's good and what's not, to discern in everyday situations, this thing, this person, this word, this action is good or bad. And that is to seek God and God's ways instead of me and my own ways or people and their ways. So let me just say it this way. Things that belong to God are to be treated differently. They are holy. Things that defile us are to be avoided. They are impure. And if we are to come into God's presence, reverence and purity are required. And I believe that that sense of otherness, that sense of purity, that sense of sacredness is what it means for God to be holy. And that is something we emulate today. Fourth question. Uh, Does God have some need that man or creation fulfills? So uh, let me try to give you some context for this question. Uh, This question arises from thinking about why God made the world. And so the idea is, as we chew on that, we kind of come to the conclusion that God must have made the world in the way he did because he wanted beings, creatures, who would choose to willingly love and serve him. And so when you, when you kind of work that through and you kind of think through that line, he creates men with free will and all the consequences that come with free will, including evil and, and uh, uncertainty in the world because people uh, have the freedom to do what they want. But does that mean that God needs us? If God created man so that man would return his love and serve him freely, does that mean something's missing from God, that he had to create it to fill a need? Well, let me just say, I think there's some difficulty translating here when we talk about God and what God needs. So so again, we're people and God's God. When we act and we do something, we usually are doing something to meet some kind of need or fill some insufficiency in us. That's how we act. And uh, whatever it is, it may lower us a little bit to say, I need this or I want this. It says something is not perfect about me. I don't believe God needs anything to be complete. I don't think God is sitting there saying, you know what, I got this hole in my heart because I don't have man who loves me. His will is good, and it's possible for God to reveal his will in a way that is perfectly selfless. I want you to go with me to Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy 6. We are just inching our way forward in the Bible here. Uh, Deuteronomy 6. I love the way that this expresses uh, God's will for his people. Deuteronomy 6.24. This is what uh, the, the Jewish father was supposed to answer to his son who asked, why are we doing all this stuff? Deuteronomy 6, 24, And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day, and it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he commanded us. I want you to notice in verse 24 he says that this is for our good always. God's commands are for our good always. God's commands are not for God's good. They're not that God needs something. In fact, if you remember, that's what the serpent tempted Eve with, wasn't it? Was the idea that God is doing this because God, he is insecure and he's worried about you. God knows that if you ever eat of that, you'll be like him. And so God's scared and God's telling you no because God has his own selfish interests at heart. And Moses says, no, God's commands are for your good. By the way, how did that work out for Adam and Eve? It certainly wasn't the case that God was being selfish about his command. In the same way, I think that if we're saying that God is is prompting creation because he's being selfish and he needs somebody to meet his needs, then we come back to that same idea. God's commands are not for our good. God's commands are for his good. I would also say that when you get to the cross and you understand that God is sending his son out of love for his creation and a desire to save them, I don't believe you can ever successfully accuse that God of being selfish. The God of the cross cannot be selfish, which means this is not about God saying, meet my needs. It is instead God going out of his way to meet others' needs. So at the end of all of that, I just say, any attempts to understand God along that line, just inadequately humanize him. It makes him too much like us. I don't believe that God has a literal back and a literal face, but sometimes that's the way he expresses himself to us because that's the best we can do to understand him is to be kind of like a human. But God has a will for man and creation that is always for our good. He can want things without being needy. He can have desires without there being some hole in his heart. But I especially want to say, love leaves us vulnerable and love does lower us. And God willingly chooses to love. In fact, God is love. And so God is willing to be lowered for us. But that doesn't mean he's dependent on us. He gives to us life and breath and all things. He's not worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything. So I think at the end of that question, we just say, no, God is different from us. And he really does have our best interests at heart and not his own. All right, I'm getting worried because I have six minutes. Okay, so... Number five, is Jesus God or his son? Let's go to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. We moved on to Jesus uh, and the nature and character of Jesus here. Is Jesus God or God's son? And the answer to the question is yes. Jesus is God or his son, depending on how you want to describe him and look at him. John 8 verse 56 Jesus says, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old. Have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Now, we just studied a minute ago, didn't we? I am? That's a big deal. That's the name of God. So Jesus is saying, I am the I am. Before Abraham was I am. He is equating himself with Jehovah God. I mean, no wonder they take up stones to throw at him. They know that is blasphemy of the highest sort. Not just saying something bad about God, but saying, I am God in human flesh. Jesus says that. So is Jesus God? Yes. Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Matthew 1 23. And then John 1 John describes this. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So he makes it clear Jesus is God. He was God in the beginning. He was with God and was God, which we'll talk about more in a second. But then he became flesh and we beheld his glory. But you can also see in this passage, don't you, at the end there, glory is of the only Son from the Father. So we're not talking just about Jesus being God. We also have this designation that Jesus is Son. And so when the disciples come to believe in Jesus, yes, they believe that he is the Messiah, but they believe more than that because they say, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The the Messiah doesn't have to be the Son of God. At least not from the Hebrew Scriptures. This is something that they came to two different conclusions and combined them together about the identity of Jesus. And one of them is, you are the Son of God. Not specifically that you are God, but you are God's Son. So, John 20, 31, these are written, these things that I've written are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. certainly appears that this is the confession that is expected in the early church that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, and the Son of God. So God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So is Jesus God or his Son? The answer is yes. Jesus is God and Jesus is God's Son. And that is something that makes our heads hurt. So let me do the best I can to explain that. And I'm not going into this in much detail because I don't have a lot of detail um, and this is a question that has been super divisive historically throughout the history of the church. Uh, my understanding is that God has equal parts, or you might call them roles. And at some point, the son agrees to go to earth in submission to the will of the father. And after his ascension, he sits at the right hand of the father. That in some way, the different parts of God or roles of God are working together to work through this plan Of salvation for God's people. But having said that, we have to be very wary of the idea that we are serving multiple gods. That is not the case. We do not serve multiple gods. We are not polytheists. We don't serve three gods. We serve one God, Jehovah God, who has manifested himself in different ways. In a similar way to the different names, here there are different roles and different persons of God that he has used to bring about his plan uh, now down to today. So the different aspects of God's character all work together and are all God. That's a mystery to everybody, and that's why the question is confusing, and that's why I say yes to an either-or question. All right, the last one, I have one minute, and I will not be able to finish this, but I'm going to try. Is Jesus a servant now? So uh, we sang the servant song uh, before I got up here. And in this version of the Servant Song, there are several different versions. Uh, It says, for you were a servant. Some versions say you are a servant. And so the question is, what's that about? Is Jesus a servant now? Or is that just something that a role he took on when he came to earth? Uh, The text that's important here is Philippians 2. Uh, so I'm not going to have time to go into the text in Philippians 2. But Philippians 2 describes how Jesus emptied himself and lowered himself, taking on the form of a servant, and being obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. But then it says, therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue should confess. So you have the humbling and the service and then the exaltation. And Paul talks about that as if, The exaltation has already happened, although some of the every knee should bow is yet to play out. So, the question is, is Jesus a servant now? And to me, this is a classic case of taking the same word with two different meanings. On the one hand, if you are saying, when you sing, make me a servant for you are a servant. If you mean that Jesus is still a servant in the sense that he has taken on the form of a servant and lived as a man, and died for others, then no, that is not the way to think of that, and that's not accurate. Jesus is not a servant now in that sense. Jesus has done the work on earth that was expected from him. However, if we sing and we mean that Jesus is still obedient to the will of the Father, that Jesus is still serving his people, interceding on our behalf, that Jesus is still humble and lowly and inviting people to him, And you say, well, Jesus is a servant even now, then yes, I think that that's appropriate. Jesus is a servant now. So in that sense, yes. But to be fair, I think when we sing that song, it's really a reference back to when Jesus was on earth. And we see Jesus service, we see Jesus with the towel, we see Jesus caring for people. And so it's really about the tremendous example he showed. It's less about where he is now and what he's doing now, in my opinion, than it is what he did then. And we are saying, that example is what I want to be. And we're asking God, make me a servant like Jesus, the the kind of servant I saw when he was on earth. So I would encourage us to keep thinking about that and the songs that we sing, and we'll think about how we can make that into something that's biblically accurate uh, as we sing. All right, well, thank you so much for your attention. We'll be dismissed for our classes.